Hi, this is Luigi Gallaschelli, and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 78. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelan Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey san, hey san! Yes, I am in Hungary right now. Oh, really? Back home? <laughs> For the moment, yeah, yeah, for the time being. The next destination is Canada. Ooh, good for you. Um, yeah, good for me. Mm. Um, I w- Say hello to good old Justin. I, I mean, he's not Justin? old. Yeah. He's not old at all, no. No, he's <laughs> young and good looking. Oh, but uh, yeah. But uh, if if you're not him, you ha- there are skeptics there as well. I hope you can have a chance to say hello to. <laughs> yeah, I indeed. would love to say hello to them. And if I can't this time... Because, uh, yeah, there's going to be a bit of bit, bit tight, this one. But I'm going back again twice this summer. So, Ooh, oh, who you're knows? A, nice. You're a bit of a... A yeah, traveller. Traveller, yeah. traveller. Working on your miles, yeah. The man will travel. Yeah, that's what I do for a living, yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, we've just come up with a with a brilliant... Um, I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry for um, praising my own idea. Uh, but... <laughs> Go ahead, Andrew. But you I know do what? like this idea um, that we've come up with with um, Susan Gerbig. We're both speaking at the European Skeptics Congress at the end of uh, September yeah. in Wroclaw. Yeah. Um, that's something that I do recommend everyone listening to this podcast to attend. Absolutely, be... please go. You don't. You don't want to miss that. Yeah, and we'll we'll all be there. And it's going to be great fun. Uh, The line of speakers is brilliant. Uh, There is one, I have no idea how uh, he made it to the list of speakers, but but he's going to, I'm pretty sure he's going to try his best to to provide you with some some useful information. The pressure is high, the pressure is high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know, but the rest of them are brilliant and they are absolutely worth uh, uh, attending for. By the way, Um, Andres referring to himself. I don't know how how they booked him either. It must be a mistake. But all the others are great, just as you say. Obviously, no standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a little bit of con- uh, con- um, what Convin- was it? convincing. Convincing. Okay, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the listeners. This is uh, about the level uh, that you can expect <laughs> out of my my speech. Do you know no. what, Andres? I believe in you. Hey. You'll be fine. No, no. Okay, so getting back to our idea. Um, that we've come up with with uh, Susan Gerbig. It's the idea that um, after the European Skeptics Congress um, is done and it's over, we would like to go on a bit of a tour um, across uh, Central Europe. So like a, like a road trip, a skeptical road trip that uh, we've, we've heard of in other countries uh, by other skeptics we all know and love. 
um, being done. So, yeah, that's what we would like to do. And if there is someone in the following countries who would like us to um, give a talk at a Skeptics in the Pub event or anything like that, uh, Susan would be thrilled to, to talk about guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia. I would be thrilled to talk about not only the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, but European-level skepticism and how we should really join our efforts into uh, something uh, bigger that, that can have an effect on European-level policies mm-hmm. and policymaking. And, um, so w- so yeah, what, countries, could... what countries are you going to go through? Yeah, so the the countries are the following uh, that that we are looking at. So we are starting out in uh, Wroclaw, which is in Poland. So neighboring countries are uh, the Czech Republic, Germany, and as we move along, um, I'm thinking of hiring a car. So uh, that means that we have absolute mobility. Uh, we could visit Slovakia as well. We could visit. Hungary and Austria, I'm pretty sure I can do something about Hungary. Then Switzerland, Italy and Slovenia are on the table as well. So if our skeptic listeners uh, in any of these countries would like to have us for a night, I mean, for for skeptics in the pub or, or something like that, um, then we would be more than happy to attend. And uh, with a little bit of contribution, we don't ask for much. We, we don't ask for any fees or anything. Just a shelter to live through the night and... And, and some, a beer. And a beer. And a beer. And a beer, yeah, of course, yeah. As, as dinner. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that would be all. Uh, we would be more than happy to meet all of these people. Uh, we would like to make some connections, uh, build build our skeptical network, international network, and I think this would be a very good way of doing it. Uh, the other thing that we are planning to do is, um, uh, since this is going to be a road trip, uh, I want to record everything uh, along the way, like a video recording, and make a make a road movie out of it hmm? that we can publish later on. And the other thing is that there are two of us so far. There might be a third. But there is still at least one seat in the car that Ooh. we could fill. So if someone wants to join us, guys, you're more than more than welcome. So I I hope people will like this idea, and uh, we would um, later on to to cover the costs of uh, the the traveling and the, the traveling expenses. Uh, we might even start uh, if if the whole thing actually happens then we might come up with um, a, a crowdfunding uh, option as well but uh, yeah that's a question for the future to discuss mm, great so what do you think i'd, I'd like to great. go i i'm <laughs> i would sign up myself but as you know we i, I can't but yeah <laughs> i can't get away from work otherwise i would love yeah, to 95. yeah 95 yeah, 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 you know send very well a, that 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 was the original idea. To send us a postcard. To do it with the four of us. Yeah, yeah. we definitely will if if it happens. I'm really hoping for this to happen. Hmm? And, oh yeah, I'm sure. It and will. Susan is very excited about it as well. And that would be a great opportunity for all of us to recruit people as well for for on, ongoing and and future projects, uh, including Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, because she needs editors from these countries very very badly. So, yeah, good. So, if people want to uh, give us tips or want to book you on your tour, where can they turn to? 
if you want to contact me directly, then you can write to andras at vesp.eu, which is A-N-D-R-A-S at vesp.eu. But... But then if you want to write to the ESP podcast, which you also can, and that will um, be going to Andres' email as well, that our email address is info at theesp.eu. Um, you can also tweet at us. <laughs> and uh, our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. And if you go on our website, you can complete um, a form and um, a contact form and our website is theesp.eu and that will also find its way to Andres's inbox. Absolutely. And ours. Oh, by the way, the destination of this trip will be Italy and uh, more specifically Cesena uh, in northern Italy where Cicapfest, uh, the 14th convention of uh, Cicap, will take place where Susan will give a talk Randy will be there. Yeah, you, you and follow, you're following I'm him. hoping to be there too. Uh, yeah. Not as a speaker, but as an attendant. Mm-hmm. So I'm now I'm now working on my Italian like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Guess who will also be there? Today's interviewee, Luigi Garlaschelli. That is correct. He will be at Chickup Fest. So uh, uh, go uh, see him as well, or listen to him as we uh, roll the interview very soon. Yes, that is right. He's a great guy. I mean, he's like he's like the James Randi of Italy in a way. He's done all the, you know, investigations and and yeah. reveals and stuff. But let him talk about it himself because it's better that way. One huge difference is that he's not as old as Randi is, <laughs> <laughs> although he likes to refer him to himself as an old man. But he's been around but, for a while, so yeah, he's been around for a while, and he's he's done some. Uh, Absolutely mind-blowing stuff. Blowing the minds of, of religious people, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what do you guys think of us uh, actually moving on to that part of the, the episode? I, I think Jelena would like to hear it, because unfortunately she, she... I am very much looking forward to it. She couldn't be here yesterday when we did this interview, but... Uh, no, unfortunately. I had to miss this one. Too bad. And too bad. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to it. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This week, our guest is Italian chemist, science writer and skeptic Luigi Garlaschelli. He is one of the early members of the Italian skeptics organization CICAP and the author of several books, but is probably best known for his studies into the paranormal with special interest in religious artifacts and phenomena, among which the most notable is probably the Shroud of Turin, which, based on his results, might only be a piece of medieval forgery. Luigi Garlaschelli, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, uh, we've been meaning to talk to you for a long time. I I have a special interest in uh, Italian history and culture, um, having been a tour guide for a while, uh, traveling a lot in Italy. And one thing I've noticed is that it's full of religious stories and talk of miracles. Religious leaders, some examples being the miracle of Bolsena, the the stigmata, the blood of San Gennaro, um, the, the, the patron saint of Naples. What made you question these claims and speak out in the name of rationality in a country that is generally so religious? 
Well, simply, I think I am a chemist, I am a curious person, and uh, so it's very t easy here in Italy to find uh, religious paranormal phenomena that are worth investigating. Uh, maybe if I lived in England, I would have investigated ghosts and uh, in old castles or, or the Loch Ness Monster, but since... I live in Italy, here uh, we have a lot of miracles and of relics. I think that I'm especially interested in those miracles that can be examined uh, with hard science and not uh, relics that are based simply on legends and in particular objects that have some miraculous behavior like uh, the blood of St. Januarius or uh, weeping statues or, or something like that, or that have mysterious properties like the Shroud of Turin that they say cannot be reproduced and has features that cannot be uh, understood and reproduced. Mm. You, so you made a copy of the Shroud of Turin as well. Why did that come about? Yes, actually, I made a life-size copy of the Shroud of Turin for the first time, I think. It's four meters uh, long by 1.10 meters wide. And uh, I used a linen cloth exactly waved like that of the Shroud of Turin. And it took me almost, almost a year from start to finish. And um, I'm fairly satisfied with the results, but not completely. It might still be improved. However, this reproduction has been said by, by the believers in, in the authenticity of the Shroud, the best reproduction ever. Mm -hmm. So I think that it can be improved, but it's already something yeah. I'm satisfied on about. What, what was the purpose of doing the, the copy, just to start from the beginning? Well, since they say that the Shroud of Turin has these features that cannot be understood, that cannot be reproduced by human means, uh, whereas we know that uh, the Shroud of Turin has been carbon dated and it is a medieval artifact because it was made in, in uh, 1350 or something like that, uh, then the real question is how was that made? Mm -hmm. It has to be uh, some technique that um, was available in the Middle Age and uh, that in a simple way can explain all these features that are said to be mysterious and non-reproductible. Mm -hmm. Is it made out of linen? So what is, what is the material that you can carbon date? The real Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth and we had a linen cloth waved by a specialized company exactly with the thickness and the number of threads per uh, inch as the real shroud. Okay. Uh, so we are sure that the, the, the cloth is exactly matches those of the shroud. Mm-hmm. So the actual material that could be carbon dated regarding the original Shroud of Turin was the plant material of the linen that was used. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be medieval by age. 
in the original Shadow Turin, a small corner was cut out and covered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a small strip, one centimeter by four or five centimeters, and uh, has been carbon dated by four independent labs. Uh, and all the results were in close agreement, and it was medieval. Okay. But of course, if you carbon date my shroud, it's not medieval. <laughs> it's uh, present day uh, plants. Of course. And uh, was it done in an international collaboration, your work? No, basically not. Uh, I got some grants from uh, or some money from the Italian oh, yeah. uh, groups, among them Cicap and some friends nothing from the university just um cheek up and uh an atheist organization and other uh, single people which which university is that you are affiliated with i was affiliated because now i am uh, retired but ah, okay <laughs> i i worked at the university of pavia mm-hmm. which is a small town near milan so how did people react to the results you presented? Well, I published a paper in a journal where other um, believers in the shroud, in the authenticity of the shroud, had already published some of their uh, results in favor, of course, of the shroud. And um, I had some Satisfactory media coverage, of course, because uh, here in Italy the shroud is may, makes always news. And uh, the strange thing is that, well, they dismissed my results. And basically, once you succeed in reproducing all these features of the original shroud that are supposed to be mysterious and impossible to reproduce, well, then they just ignore those features and they find something something new and say, haha, well, this, this, just forget this. But how about <laughs> instead this yeah. other feature? How, how can you explain that? Yeah. And, and also, it sounds a little ridiculous but or funny, but uh, they say, yes, oh, it's nice, it looks nice, but... The original shroud looks much nicer, and uh, I I bet that the thickness of the brown layer on the single threads on the shroud is maybe 10 micron, but in your shroud it's much more. So it's you you didn't reproduce exactly the shroud at the microscopic level. And without even analyzing my own shroud, of course, just assuming that it was different. But what I say often is that you cannot reproduce at the microscopic level anything. If you want to reproduce uh, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, say the Mona Lisa, you can do something that is like the Mona Lisa has the same kind of pigments of colors but of course at the microscopic level it's not identical there are no two objects that are identical even two coins from the same mint they will have micro scratches that can differentiate between them so Mm -hmm. it's absurd that uh, you pretend the total 
identity of two objects. What you can do is to show a technique that can explain the, the, the features of the object. Yeah. yeah. What about things like the blood of San Januarius? Um, have you made a working replica of that as well? Yes, this was one of my very first experiments in the 90s. Would you mind quickly telling our listeners what it's all about? Yes, of course. In Naples, we have this uh, dark substance that is sealed in a small vial. And supposedly that represents the blood of St. Januarius, which was beheaded in 305 near Naples one of the last Christian martyrs. We have this relic that appeared in uh, 1389. So it was not known for more than 1,000 years, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that when you have uh, human blood in a container, after a while, the, after a few minutes, the, the blood clots. Yeah. And it, it, it looks like, like a, a gel, something semi-solid, however not liquid anymore. And this uh, substance in Naples that supposedly should be the blood of St. Januarius twice a year since centuries, uh, it turns from solid to liquid. Mm -hmm. So this would be the, the miraculous behavior of this substance. Of course, the vial is sealed and you cannot take a sample and you cannot analyze by chemical or physical means the contents. And uh, also, actually, we are not even sure about the real behavior of this substance because someone says that, uh, of course, it turns from solid to liquid that this really happens because everyone can see that. But then they say that it also changes its color from less red to more red. And uh, also it increases the, its volume okay, inside the sealed bottle and also increases its weight, which is terrible, of course, mm -hmm. a weight increase. But as a matter of fact, no, no serious tests have ever been made on this substance. So there are two uh, hypotheses uh, that might explain this solid to liquid uh, transition and, and vice versa, of course, because uh, after a while the liquid, uh, if you put it again into its safe, uh, it's found uh, solid again the next, uh, the next time. And the two explanations are, one, that it might be uh, a low-melting substance, uh, like think of a wax or mm -hmm. a, um, something like a piece of butter, for example. It is solid when it is cold, but if you heat it up for um, a few minutes, just a few degrees, it will melt. Okay? Yeah. yeah. And the explanation, of course, would be that uh, at the beginning, the, the vial, the container, the relic case is a little bit cooler. And then uh, inside the cathedral packed with people, uh, there is this slight temperature increase that 
induces the, the state change and, and melts uh, the substance. Yeah. And the other hypothesis is that it's a, a thixotropic substance and namely a sort of gel, a, a thick gel that might look like a solid that however liquefies if you just shake it or tap it or uh, bump it uh, if you give enough energy to trigger the liquefaction uh, this gel completely liquefies and then if you leave it for a while it will turn solid again mm -hmm. so basically this in the case of this hypothesis might be a self-working uh, miracle because during the ceremony the relic case is more and more times turned upside down just to check if the liquefaction the liquefaction took place and and this movement can trigger the liquefaction uh, no matter if you can realize uh, how it behaves okay so um, Sometimes if you treat the, the relic case very gently and you tilt it slowly, the liquefaction might not happen. And other times you, you just, you just uh, touch it or bump it a little bit harder and the liquefaction will take place. Mm -hmm. So uh, I looked up in the chemical literature to find examples of these uh, thick isotropic uh, mixtures. And we came up with a um, very simple procedure that starting from techniques and material that were available in the Middle Age can give you a gel that basically is a iron hydroxide gel, mm -hmm. which is very dark, very dark brown. It's a gel that if you just shake it a little bit will become completely liquid. And the procedure is very simple because you start from a mineral that could once be found on Mount Vesuvius, which is the volcano near Naples. It's an iron chloride. The mineral is called molisite. If you dissolve this iron chloride in water, you have a orange solution. Then you add a base and I have used calcium carbonate, which was a white pigment used from centuries in, in arts. Uh, so what you get adding base a base to this uh, iron chloride solution is an iron hydroxide colloid. Then you have to purify it through a parchment bag and then you put some of this uh, uh, colloid into small flat round bottles. You have to add a pinch of simple kitchen salt to get the ionic strength of the solution right. And if you leave it for a few hours, it will, it will gel and you can turn the bottle upside down. It won't move. But if you just shake it a little bit, it will become completely liquid. Mm. Is there a, a recipe for, uh, available online for this? Um. Yes, yes. In my website, www.luigigarlaschelli.it. Uh, okay. If, if you just uh, search for a while, there is a recipe and uh, a paper and you can find everything. Brilliant. The, okay, that's interesting. The strange thing is that to decide between one of these two hypotheses, uh, 
you have two very simple ways that are non-destructive, by the way. You don't have to drill the glass or the vial and take a sample uh, to see if the substance is a low melting one. All you have to do is to heat it up yeah. gently from, say, 25 degrees to 33 degrees, the temperature range that can be normal in Naples, and to see if it is a, a thixotropic uh, concoction. All you have to do is, when it is solid, uh, without praying, without uh, anything, just try to shake it mm -hmm. and see if it liquefies. But evidently, these tests are too simple and were never performed. However, this is not an official miracle. It's, it's a wonder, generical wonder. It's a sign of, I don't know, of the presence of St. Januarius and his love for the city. And then there is another one, not, not very far from Naples, who's uh, San Pantaleone. Yes, <laughs> this is in Ravello, which is yes. uh, not far from Naples. I think that in this case, uh, we are pretty sure that it is a low melting substance. Okay. Because of how it looks like, and uh, it, it's a large flask behind bars, and it turns liquid only during the summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when when uh, <laughs> the temperatures are higher, of okay. course. And even so, um, what one should do is to go there every day or every other day look at the temperature in, in the church with a thermometer and write down solid or liquid yeah and we, we can see if there is a relationship between the temperature and the state solid or liquid of the substance but even that was not done instead I had the chance to test a natural relic in Amazeno, which is a small town, well, between Rome and Naples somewhere. Mm -hmm. And there they have a small vial that contains the supposedly blood of St. Lawrence, another martyr who was killed uh, on, on fire. And this substance, this vial, is, is closed in, in, a, in a small cabinet. Let, let's say nobody can can see it during the year but sometimes they open it up and look at, at this relic so in March okay it's a uh, solid it's a uh, tan colored uh, opaque substance then they look again in May eh, still solid and, and nobody touches it or uh, shakes it and then the feast day of St. Uh, Lawrence, uh, the first um, days of August, they open the cabinet and wow, it's liquid, red and transparent. But I had this relic in my hand, I tried to shake it and, and nothing happened because it, it, it didn't change the, from solid to liquid. Then I put the vial into a beaker, a glass container with some water and with a hair dryer I heated the water to 31 degrees taking the temperature with the thermometer that I had with me and at 30 degrees the substance melted uh -huh. <laughs> suddenly and then 
the other way around, I put cold water with pieces of ice all around the vial, and after a few minutes, of course, the substance cooled down and it turned again solid. So there is no doubt that in that case, at least, it's a physical phenomenon Mm -hmm. uh, that can be explained by a low melting substance. In the case of St. Januarius, uh, well, uh, we need those two tests Mm -hmm. to decide. So, So you appear on Italian TV from time to time to explain and demonstrate some of these miracles. What is what are the most frequent topics that you demonstrate? Uh, well, I have my preferred uh, experiments. Uh, for example, years ago I made weeping statues. In uh, around uh, 1995, we had a real epidemic of weeping madonnas. Uh, we had weeping statues all over Italy. They uh, used to weep to 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 weep. Uh, blood tears well in in that case you never see a statue actually weeping Uh, what you find is a statue with some blood on the face under the eyes and people say aha uh, the statue has wept blood of course so we did something better we we made a plaster statue's head made of white plasters Uh, with no uh, no visible holes, no chemicals, no electronics. You just put them in your lab on the bench top and you wait. You don't need to pray. And after a while, they weep uh, blood tears. Th- this is a lab trick, of course, that we have explained also on uh, a few papers like Chemistry in Britain. If the blood comes out, it has to be inside the, the statue. Mm-hmm. So what what you have to have is a small reservoir uh, where you put uh, blood or uh, any red liquid. And the trick is that there is um, a hole in the corner of the eye, but you cannot see the hole because you put a very small amount of plaster of Paris to mask the hole. So you cannot see a hole, but after a while, the liquid will seep through the pores of this small piece of plaster, which is a porous material, and out of nothing you get these red uh, tears on the white uh, statues that drips down, and Color TV likes this uh, quite a lot. So it's a miracle of science. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but no one ever used this trick, It's, it's too elaborated and it is too clever. It was just an example of how you can have a weeping statue mm-hmm. in a lab, even better than the real ones. What about stigmata? Uh, can you can you demonstrate anything like that without harming one's skin? Well, this is another of the things that sometimes I'm required to demonstrate. Basically, my point is, I don't know whether stigmata are a sign from God, if they are psychosomatic or something like that. But however, uh, you should be aware that there are three or four uh, techniques to fake stigmata that you must be aware of, not to be tricked or fooled. Okay, and so one technique is very simple and the day before the the TV show, you scratch 
with a needle, the back of your hand and the palm of your hand with many tiny scratches and you squeeze out some blood, you smear some blood all around these uh, wounds and you let it dry mm. and uh, on both hands. And then you go to the TV studio with these stigmatic gloves without the fingers, you know, like uh, those of uh, Padre oh. Pio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and you show your stigmata that already are dark, dark red with this uh, crust on, on them. And you explain that this is the simplest way. When the body is looking, you just uh, wound yourself and you scratch uh, your, your skin with a sharp object. This is one technique. A second technique is that you might use uh, chemicals. For example, if you use caustic soda, NaOH, okay, in a concentrated solution, and you apply a few drops of this solution onto your skin and let it dry. Uh, this solution is uh, very aggressive, okay? And after a while you have, a, you, you don't see anything on your hand, but after a while, uh, let's say one hour maybe, you start uh, getting red marks and then like, like something like a wound and uh, this becomes redder and redder. They might think you uh, have been checked because you have nothing on your hand and they were looking at you. Mm. But in advance you had prepared your hand and this is another technique uh, to get stigmata out of nothing. And I once uh, used a solution of uh, caustic soda uh, on my wrist, my right wrist. I painted a cross on the wrist, not, not on the back of the hand. But, uh, well, I made a mistake. I have used uh, two concentrated solution. So I got a very thick scar and uh, a very thick crust that went away in more than one month and now I have a permanent scar cross-shaped on my <laughs> on oh. my waist. Oh my god! That's a dedication! <laughs> yes, I can show it with pride. <laughs> See how silly I am. <laughs> and another, another trick that sometimes I use is a purely chemical one uh, there are chemicals uh, which are colorless and when they are mixed they uh, they produce a dark red color so you put a few drops of chemical A on one hand you put a few drops of chemical B on the other hand then you join your hands like if you were praying and the chemical mix and you separate your hands and out of nothing Ta-da! Uh, bleeding stigmata on your palms, <laughs> and and this this is a, a chemical trick, of course. Then you you wash, uh, you clean your hand. You don't have any any wound on your palm, but you see, if you want to start a career as a stigmatic, <laughs> so now we know. Might be a good opening number. <laughs> tricks of the trade yeah so, so it looks like um that's how you regard people like uh you mentioned padre pio yeah how much caution do you need to apply when you talk about these in public does it generate any outrage in such a religious 
kind of society? Well, um, first of all, it depends on the kind of audience you have. <laughs> yeah. And this, uh, in turn, depends uh, on who invited you for your lecture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, so when you know you know you're among skeptics, that's not a problem, I assume. But yes. When but you appear on national TV, that's a different thing. Yes, I must be a little more cautious. But basically, uh, what I say are uh, dates and data uh, that shouldn't be contested, uh, that could be checked. They are real, that uh, nobody can uh, say... Uh, I'm not telling the truth. And, of course, the real problem in, in these cases is that you don't have data to make your hypothesis because our very old cases, uh, they have not been properly analyzed. For example, if I should uh, test a stigmatic now, I would propose to enclose his whole arm within a transparent glass container uh, or plastic container that cannot be tampered with so that you can actually see how the stigmata are generated if they are generated out of nothing how they evolve how long they last if if they disappear spontaneously of not or not this is the kind of test you should do otherwise you don't have data to reason on and this is is never done so all you can do is to express your opinion, your hypothesis, to show how a phenomenon can be reproduced and show that maybe you have another possibility. But it's very difficult uh, that you can analyze a real stigmatic. Uh, they they yeah. don't let you analyze them. They say, huh, mm -hmm. we, we are not uh, guinea pigs. Why, you don't believe in God? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what they tell you. So, so, yeah. so what you can do is only show that it can be done in different ways, but it's very hard to say that it was done uh, in a fraudulent way when it, in, in the real case. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. it's uh, the, the reproduction technique. Yeah. But, but have, still, yeah. have, have you found that your efforts uh, have been fruitful with regards to the public understanding of these topics? And, and in science in general? I think so, because, uh, of course, people will realize that there are other ways to explain a miracle uh, other than the miraculous explanation. Yeah. And so sometimes you, you actually can analyze something uh, like, like the, the blood of St. Lawrence that melts uh, yes. yeah. uh, with, with uh, heating. And... Um, even even the shroud of Turin is closed in, in his case. There is an exhibition sometimes, but uh, the last time that uh, they actually took samples from the real uh, shroud of Turin was uh, 30 years ago, uh, maybe in uh, 1988. So uh, you, you don't have access to the actual object. So what, what can you say about that? Uh, it, it's up to the church decide whether allow uh, new tests or not. Yeah, and, and but no, and it's not really in their interest to be proven wrong. As long as they keep it a mystery, <laughs> it's a mystery. They, it's a miracle. They don't really want it to be proven to be something else. Maybe, for example, the blood of Saint Januarius, as I told you, is not uh, an official miracle because to declare 
that the phenomenon is a real miracle would require a committee that would analyze everything very carefully mm-hmm. and not uh, with just blotted, blotted experiments that have been done in the past. And sometimes this is done. For example, the claim that the blood of St. Januarius increases its weight has been tested by request of the church itself. They had weighted the relic case uh, and the vial altogether. It was about one kilogram. And after the liquefaction, the liquefaction, the weight had increased about 30 grams. This was done in 1905 or something like that, or 1910. Well, this has been repeated a few years ago with an electronic modern scale and it turned out that the weight does not change mm. not not even one milligram within the sensitivity range of the balance of course mm. so if you analyze carefully a claim sometimes you see that it is not true at all yeah but you even um, teach people or I, i'm pretty sure that a lot of people have followed your example of uh, trying to um, investigate these uh, are you personally involved in the the yearly investigators of mysteries courses organized by cheekup yes well uh, i did many strange things uh, <laughs> not necessarily paranormal but Um, generally chemistry related uh, let's say this and um, then Chicap keeps um, seminars and courses every year for um, investigators of the mystery where we teach people how to investigate uh, several kind of uh, paranormal phenomena and actually next Saturday I will be in Padua Uh, talking about miracles and the shroud and all the things we are talking about now. And um, sometimes uh, some of these people uh, got very interested and they they spend time and energy investigating first-hand paranormal phenomena. And also we ran the Randy test here in Italy for the Randy prize of one million dollars for so very often we had to test water dowsers, you know, or um, uh, faith healing uh, when people lay hands and, and they heal you, and uh, mind readers and all, all the classic paranormal phenomena. And these are very interesting tests that we have done, even on TV sometimes. Yeah, there was one uh, a mind reading test that was featured on our show. Uh, we we reported on it. That was uh, that we read about on one of the, the Italian newspapers, I think, with a, a, a mother and a daughter. Yes, this was a um, few months ago. Yeah. And we went to the city, Biella. There is a mother and a daughter. They have uh, Zener cards. And um, they shuffle the, the deck. They turn one card. They look into each other's eyes. And uh, the daughter draws the, the, the symbol. And they have a very low screen between them. Just enough to to hide from you the cards, but they still can look each other's faces. And with this uh, small screen, uh, the hit rate was about 
more than 90%, which is a huge, of course, huge result. Uh, when the screen was raised so that they couldn't look into each other's eyes, the hit rate was exactly random. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember that, yeah. And so there is only one conclusion. They are very uh, smart. They can exchange very little movement of the face or the mouth of the eyes or something like that. To, after all, you, all, you only have to transmit four symbols, of course. Yeah. 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 You are also an author of uh, several books. Uh, are they available only in Italian or is there some of them that are in English? I think they are, they are all available only in Italian. The former publisher now uh, went out of business and uh, I'm trying to get my copyright back and maybe in the future I will be able to translate some of them in English. But the problem I realized is that first you have to translate the book and then you can offer to a foreign publisher. Uh, yes. <laughs> if he likes uh, the book, then he will publish it, but he will not spend money to have the book translated before. And uh. so this is, this is the problem. Yeah, I guess. However, my, my last, my very last book is a handbook of chemical magic. Mm -hmm. Magical reaction for um, stage magic. Okay, that should be of interest, I think, internationally. Yes, yeah. how how to how to yeah. make uh, fire, smoke, uh, changes of color, uh, that kind of things. And this, I I am translating it now, mm. and so we will see. Oh, okay. good. We will follow that. So. Yeah, let us know when when you're done translating it, and uh, we could we could try and and help you find a publisher. Well, try find a translator. A translator first, okay. From, from, yeah, yeah. from Italian from Italian to English. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, any of any of our listeners interested, then uh, please get in touch. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Before we go. There is something I'm I'm really looking forward to because uh, I plan to go to Cheek Up Fest in the end of September. Mm -hmm. And I saw your name among the the speakers as well. Yes. What is it that you will be speaking about at Cheek Up Fest? Actually, we will talk again about St. Januarius 20 years later with new development, new hypotheses. Um, you can miss my lecture because <laughs> it will be me and a historian who wrote a very documented a book of Saint, on St. Januarius from a historical point of view, not from a chemical point of view. But it will be uh, a talk between the two of us. Mm. Even if I somehow miss your talk, I'm okay. going to try and catch you for a selfie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you this. I've been going to Italy and especially to Naples uh -huh. for a couple of years with Hungarian tourists. Mm -hmm. And every single time I'm there and when I'm up in Ravello talking mm -hmm. about uh, San Pantaleone mm -hmm. as well, I usually mention that there is this thought that it might be just a trick, just a chemical trick. And I usually even mention your name. Mm -hmm. And it would be great to accompany that with a selfie with you. So, <laughs> and this is this is why I asked about the the recipe. 
if you have a recipe online that uh, we usually go up to Mount Vesuvius as well so I might might just uh, do the the thing in front of them <laughs> well um, no I, it, it wouldn't happen I know no I have the recipe for the blood of Saint Januarius which however is uh, rather difficult to carry around because uh, <laughs> when you carry it around it will be will vibrate and when you arrive it's most probably liquid so oh, yeah okay when, when i show it on tv i have to go to the studio the day before and find a quiet corner to leave my samples so that i'm sure that the day after they will be solid uh-huh. oh yeah <laughs> so it, it's very complicated and also the mm, temperature sensitive substance will require uh, sometimes for the substance to get liquid of course okay. mm-hmm. and let's say one hour or so it's not a matter of minutes uh, and also you have to find some kind of of fat that would melt around mm. uh, 30 degrees and maybe some uh, food uh, stuff like uh, animal grease or or even butter probably mm. Or uh, coconut butter or, um, that melts about uh, 28, 29 degrees. I understand. So I'll, I'll, I'll probably just keep talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Before we leave you, uh, Luigi, uh, are there any other projects that you're working on? No, but I am a fakir. Oh, yeah. Are you? Yes, I can eat fire, stop my heart and lay on a bed of nails and eat glass. And then I took out the only real sword in the stone existing on earth, which is in Italy. And I didn't become the new King Arthur, unfortunately. Uh, too bad. Experiment that, that I have done on homeopathy in the university or on the illusion of uh, uh, the anti-gravity hills where things run uphill and all that kind of stuff. Sounds fascinating. Among all the things that you have worked with, because there are lots and lots, we could be talking about this for, for hours. Which one is your favorite that, that excites you the most? Oh, gee, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's always the last one uh, which is the best one all of them I would say were uh, gave me a lot of satisfaction so I don't know the thing is that I have kept doing things and every now and then they ask me again and again the same things so uh, sometimes I have to repeat uh, the Saint Januarius thing uh, several times every year because the miracles happens every year of course twice <laughs> and they come here to interview me and when they exhibit the shroud then the journalist uh, google up and, and find oh Carlos Kelly has made a shroud Let, let's go interview him and then I have to explain and show my shroud and so on and so on but well now in this moment I am collecting the early records of the vampires that happened in the 1700s. Uh, This is just um, historical research. The very first records when they found this uh, 
vampires in graves, uh, which puzzles me because they're very difficult to find. They are all in German and written in Gothic and not available in Italian. So I'm trying to collect them. And, um, and does that mean that you work with uh, German people? Um who can help you with that? Or is that a, some kind of a collaborative work, an international one? Not really. I had a, a book from a German author, mm -hmm. which is written in German, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, I can understand some German because I studied it in high school and later for a few years, and I can... Uh, translate modern Germany. The problem is when I have to translate gothic old German, uh, that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> can imagine. yeah, and then, then I would need uh, the help of a German speaking expert that can read or uh, understand German. If he's mother tongue, probably he can understand even uh, old German. Well, we have um, lots of listeners from uh, Germany, so if they know someone who's an expert in old Gothic uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. texts, then uh, yeah. First of all, I should try to convince the author that presented me with that book of him <laughs> <laughs> to translate just a few lines that uh, I, I don't understand. However, well, thank you, we will see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I can say that in after 20 years, I have not found a colloid expert or a blood uh, expert willing to help me with the St. Januarius research. So uh, I, I don't have much hope that I will find <laughs> uh, someone willing to help me in, in these things. Challenge But, accepted. Yes. <laughs> uh, where can people follow your work if they want to? look you up online and see what you've done well i have a website luigigarlaschelli.it if you go to my website and you look around you will find papers on all the topics that i just mentioned there is a book on the lord miracles uh, the anti-gravity hills mm -hmm. uh, the miracle of bolsena of the bleeding hosts and so on so maybe you can get some inspiration and then i have a facebook page luigi garlaschelli and so just follow me in these places and you will be updated very good thank you thank you and indeed thank you very much luigi I, it was it was a real pleasure talking to you and uh, we wish you all the best a good health for the upcoming decades and uh hope to see you in person soon yes yeah a couple of months yeah <laughs> okay so bye 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 thank you bye 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 bye, bye. i can't wait to meet him in person no he's, he's a great guy and you know we only got to scratch the surface of all he's done so there's at least one more interview there if we want to so I'm, yeah, yeah i'm pretty sure i'm yeah. pretty sure there is yeah it would be great uh yeah and i might be stealing that opportunity from from you guys and and just go on with it when i'm on the spot with him <laughs> yeah, yeah in, in um fest, but I'm, yeah cheek up fest i'm really looking forward to that one too mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what a busy autumn we're looking at i'm i, I know i'm i, I keep saying that but i just can't believe that will be happening mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and if you can't wait until autumn and all these things, you know that there's always things going on in Europe all the time, and you can find those things in the the, the skeptic calendar or the events in Europe uh, page on our webpage at the the esp.eu. Uh, look, go there, look there, and uh, maybe you could help sponsor this famous road trip of ours or of of uh, Andras's with uh, clicking on the donate button. That would be much appreciated. And we're still looking for people contacting us uh, with uh, locations uh, where we could go with Susan. Yeah. Anything else for today, guys? No, I think that's it. No. That means that this show is over, but next week we are coming back with another segmented episode. Yeah, we just uh, discussed that uh, every single time we do these uh, episodes, uh, we realize... But by the time it goes out, it, it sounds a bit outdated. I hope, dear listeners, you don't mind that. But that's uh, because of the news cycle. Is There's so much, so many things going on these, these the days. Time. All the time. And someone says something absolutely stupid, mind-blowingly stupid, and we can't react to it right away because we, we do want, want to keep this, uh, this circulation of these episodes uh, as it is, because it it seems to be working quite well. So we'll keep doing that, and I hope uh, our listeners will um, stay with us. And please spread the word, share our episodes, tell a friend, tell a friend, share on Facebook, whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. always good. And I'd like to thank both of you, Yelena and Pontus, for joining me today. Ciao. Thanks, guys. Ciao. And until next week, goodbye. Bye bye. Hello, dear skeptical friends. This is Claire Kleinberg, co-organizer of the European Skeptics Congress 2017. This year, the Congress will be held in Wroclaw, Poland on September 22nd to 24th, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you to attend. Come and listen to talks by James Randi, Susan Gerbic, Mark Linnis, Susan Blackmore, Scott Lilienfeld, and others. Discuss topics like science and religion, pseudoscience and media, paranormal investigation, and more. To buy a ticket and to get more information about the Congress, go to euroskepticscon.org or find us on Facebook. See you there! This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Oh yeah Ready Ha ha Woo ha
I oh. meant this as a se- segue to. Oh, oh. Uh. <laughs> how how would that be? Oh, okay. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I'm just gathering my thoughts.